This is the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast, exploring the human element behind cybersecurity programs and technology. What's going on, everyone? And welcome back to the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast. If you work in security, you know that compliance sucks. The traditional requests for manual screenshots, spreadsheets, long meetings with auditors, the list goes on, and it's not a great experience. But luckily, there's ByteCheck, a platform designed to make compliance suck less. With ByteCheck, you can establish your security program, automate your readiness assessment, and complete your SOC 2 examination faster, all from a single platform. The ByteCheck platform is powered by the ByteCheck engine, which automatically assesses your controls against audit and security best practices. ByteCheck is founded by cybersecurity and accounting industry leaders with a combined 30 years of experience. That knowledge is ingrained in the ByteCheck engine to provide you with quality reports that meet applicable standards. If you're in the market for SOC 2, we have a special offer for Hacker Valley Studio listeners. You can get 50% off the annual subscription to the ByteCheck platform and a free readiness report from the ByteCheck team. Reach out to ByteCheck at ByteCheck.com and tell them Hacker Valley Studio sent you. Who doesn't love a dynamic duo? And that is exactly what we've brought to you in this episode. We have a founder's journey. We've brought in the co-founders of Material Security, Ryan Noon and Abhishek Argawal. This is a great episode. I love their synergy and all of the amazing things that they're doing. So let's jump right into this episode. What's going on, everybody? You are in the Hacker Valley studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again. And we've brought in another dynamic duo. Our two guests are disrupting the cybersecurity industry. This episode, we've brought in two Dropbox alums that have been that have their customers raving about them. We've brought in the co-founders of Material Security, Ryan Noon and Abhishek Argawal. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Yo, Thanks for having yo. us. Gentlemen, when I spoke to Haroon, he told me that the only time he felt jealous was talking to you two. And so that immediately piqued my interest. But for the folks that don't know who you are just yet, would love to hear a little bit about your background and what you're doing today. All right, cool. Yeah, no, I think I'm jealous of Haroon because he's <laughs> the closest thing the cybersecurity industry has to a saint. But no, I'm Ryan. I'm the CEO of the company. I started about four years ago in the midst of the last election. I got really obsessed with the John Podesta breach, like more obsessed than anybody that's not Russian. And uh, yeah, and that's me. I'm a software engineer who has a master's degree in security, which is the least useful credential you can get in grad school because it's all applied. And I used to work at Dropbox. I had a startup before that. And I was, I was the first employee during grad school at the one and only Stanford math department spin out. If, you, if you're keeping score at Stanford, it's about 100,000 startups in the computer science department and one in the math department. So that was, that was the one that I picked because it was cool. So that's me. Cool. Uh, yeah, guys, happy to be here. My name is Abhishek, one of the co-founders of the company and CTO. And I too was at Dropbox before this. I was an early PM there. I worked on a, a bunch of different parts of the product. 
And my background spans product, business, design, engineering. I've done a little bit of it all. Started my career at Microsoft Research, then was at Harvard for a while, getting an MBA, and then at Dropbox and started this company. He's a really good oh. sport when you tease him about the MBA. You can do it. <laughs> we each have pretty pretty impressive grad school degrees that are you know equally irrelevant. So yeah, Abhishek, I'd like to ask you, what was tougher, starting the company or finishing up at Harvard? Dude, Harvard wasn't tough at all. We were just spending our time like partying. <laughs> like business school is un, very much unlike the undergrad experience, which I didn't go to. But we used to joke like the law students and med students are like really unhappy in Harvard grad school, but the business school students are just partying all the time. So. It really wasn't that hard. <laughs> Do you feel like that translated into the, the startup life pretty easily or, or was there a, a huge adjustment on your end? <laughs> I had Dropbox in the middle, which I think was like in many that's ways. A good, that's a good seg, I would say. Yeah, yeah. I, I had Dropbox <laughs> in the middle. But, but you know, I think it's like anything else. There's, there's definitely days where I'm glad I did it and there's some directly relevant stuff. But then on the other hand, it's just a degree and a lot of startups you can't really study for. So... You have to figure it out as you go. So one of the questions that comes to my mind, looking at both of you all's resume, you have a strong engineering background, but you're developing a security product. How does that translate for your customers? Does that actually come into your advantage of having such a strong engineering background? Or are there things about security that you think that are that the company would excel even further in? Let's start with you, Ryan. I think anybody who thinks that engineering, I, I say this as an engineer, but you have to know how the computers work. Like fundamentally, it's the technology industry and people, they buy our software because it solves their problems. And it's fundamentally about what can I make computers do that's useful? So anybody who tells you like coding, well, that's, I want to get promoted. Like coding is for low level, whatever minions, like, no, like the people who know how to make the computers do thing, like that's, that's why we all get to work in this industry fundamentally. Uh, and if only people could make it work a little more safely, maybe the cybersecurity industry would be a little easier to work in. But I, I love being an engineer. Like I, it's the coolest you know job. The hardest part is probably about being a CEO. I, I think people, you have to be on an incredibly strong foundation with anything you build. Your product has to work, especially security products, right? So I, I, I take pride in the fact that all those years doing coding projects at school and all those years of staying up all night to fix the bugs, it has contributed to a product that that actually hopefully, theoretically, continually works. And so I, I wouldn't know how to do it any other way. It's You wouldn't trust somebody who ran a restaurant who didn't have taste buds or whatever. Like, it has to work. It has to make sense. It has to taste good. The product has to work. So that's, they're just fundamentals and you can't do anything without the fundamentals. Yeah, my take on this is it allows you to skip some translation steps if you've got an engineering background and then you're also building a product that's fundamentally in the technical space like Ryan's talking about. For me personally, it's been really interesting entering the security industry because I, I, at least most of my background, even though it's in software and engineering, it's been in the productivity industry. And at least four years ago, we were newcomers in the security industry. And it's just been really interesting to see how some of the lessons of like productivity can be carried over, right? Like a lot of things like minimizing user friction, a lot of systems engineering where you're looking at different parts that already exist and you're seeing where the sum can be greater than uh, or where they can be the better than some of the whole parts. This is this kind of stuff that carries over from engineering or product design or productivity into security. And it's really fun. 
And I love security people because I think engineers, they're fundamentally builders, right? The engineer who's building the bridge is, I'm going to put up this orange gleaming monument to Marin County that will stand for centuries. And then the security person is, nah, it's going to fall over. I'm going to break it. I know how it works. <laughs> you know? And I think that there's harmony there. Destruction is a form of creation. And there's knowing how something is intended to be, which is a, it's a, a beautiful position to be in. Then there's knowing what something actually does, but how it can be how it can be subverted and broken, and I, that's the fusion I think of the two definitions of hacker. And I love the security industry for that as well. It's the oh yeah, it, it's cool that you thought that would work, but it's my job to tell you that no, it doesn't. <laughs> and I think every, every great engineer knows that best laid plans in mice and men. In the industry, you cannot ignore it. Absolutely. That, that makes so much sense coming from an engineering background and engineering mindset. But my question is, why security? Pivoting off of Ron's question, of all of the things that you all could do, you could have gone right into the consumer space and done something in, with engineering for the end user for millions of people. But you decided security. Why is that? And let's start with you, Ryan. I did security for grad school because it was like, it's actually kind of applied systems, I think would be the, the charitable academic way to describe security. <laughs> you know, like, oh, cool stack, I'm going to smash it. So it was just, it's always like a, a fun puzzle. But then you, when you're, when you start companies, there's broadly speaking, consumer and enterprise. I'm bad at consumer. Someone told me once consumer is a casino. Like who the <laughs> hell knows what people are going to spend their eyeballs on and whatever. Enterprise is honest work, theoretically. Like I, I, your customer's got a million dollar problem and for the low price of $500,000, you can solve it for them. And both sides are better off. That's efficiency. That's everybody wins. And so you have to go to where the problem is. And so four years ago, I'd left Dropbox and I was just like, I'd actually, I lived in the Bay Area since I was 18. So it's like longer than I lived anywhere else. And I just, after I left Dropbox, I had to go somewhere different. And so I moved to Berlin, which is the most different place in the world from the Bay Area. <laughs> But there's a lot of spray paint and stuff on stuff, but that's about where it ends. And so I just got glued to the newspaper. When you live in another country, you are glued to the newspaper of your home country. Uh, it cheapens the experience of trying to live somewhere else, but you just refresh New York Times. And so four years ago was the last election. And I just got obsessed with this. Like, how does this guy's emails all over the front page? And you can, there's like a, there's like the, a one alarm fire, a two alarm fire, a three alarm fire, a four alarm fire. I, I mostly know that because that's how you measure the spiciness of chili. I'm not really a firefighter. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but like the, the point is there's like, when you're an enterprise, you can, I, I think one of the, the least used heuristics for what enterprise startup company should I start is look at the newspaper. And then the one alarm fire is like, it's buried in trade press. The two alarm fire is it's in the business section or whatever. The three alarm fire is it maybe it's in like an opinion column or something, or it's in Wall Street Journal or something, which is basically trade press, you know. Or then there's like front page of the, all the newspapers. And then there's that's like four. And then there's people know about it that don't read newspapers. Mm. So if you can find a big problem and you think you have a chance to make a difference, emails all over the newspapers and it's it stayed that way to the extent that people are just sick of oh yeah another government who's lost their email like i wonder what prime minister is going to get fired this time it's like when a problem is that big i just got glued to it so you go to where the problem is i always like security because it's cool it just it's it's the coolest thing ever you, maybe i'm just biased because i you know sacrificed my whole life to this company but you just be drawn to the problem and security is there's problems on problems. There's there's problems that are the result of other problems. <laughs> you know? If you're a problem solver, like security is where you go. It is the capital of the world for problems. That's brilliant. Absolutely love the newspaper analogy. What about you, Abhishek? Yeah, I, it's a lot of similar stuff. Obviously, there's a reason Ryan and I started the company together. I think like the problem, absolutely attractive. And also for me personally, 
people make fun of me for this, but even when I was at Dropbox, like I've always been obsessed with email. I think it's like an insanely incredible tool. If you think about it, like I can just email anyone in the planet and it's just crazy. And I think it sucks that it's just getting completely demolished by all this, all these security issues. And at some point, it, companies doing completely draconian things like limiting the amount of email that their employees can have to like six months or a year. And you're taking this awesome productivity tool and shooting it in the face. And as someone who spent like their entire career in productivity, it's just, it was annoying. So that combined with the magnitude of the problem that Ryan's talking about. And then also like anyone else, once we had this idea and we had conceptualized the kind of stuff we could do, you just get obsessed with it, right? Your sort of brain will explode if you don't do something about it. So I think at that point, it, we were just so in too deep and we had to start it. We started meeting, meeting people like Haroon and Haroon's like, this makes so much sense. And I'm like, you are the most legit person and you believe in how much it's about people. Like people believe in you. And every startup, no matter who you are, whenever you start a company, it's, unless you're completely off your rocker, it's like a, a humbling experience. For a year, like it's like, you know, magical when someone takes a meeting with you, even if you've theoretically had success and whatever. It's just, it, it, you, you feed the beast. You find the problem and people say, yeah. I have that problem. And moreover, your solution is practicable. And you're like, all right, uh, you've just put a ton of gas in my tank. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really important point. I think especially when you're getting started, there's just it, things have to be nurtured. And it's like really easy to psych yourself out of anything. And who you meet in those early days and who you share your ideas with and get feedback from, that can be critical. Because if it's going to be someone who's like uh, shooting everything down or pointing out all the flaws without appreciating the kind of like solid aspects of it, that can, it's, it can really crush your mojo versus the opposite, which we were real lucky enough to meet folks both at Dropbox, but then also in the security industry overall that were hungry for pragmatic stuff. They were hungry for new takes on an old problem and they were super encouraging to us. So we're talking about email and we're talking about material security. And I think typically when security practitioners are hearing about something that's going to protect or help them with email, they start rolling their eyes and like another phishing solution. <laughs> but I know that you two are doing something completely different, which I love. You're turning the model on his head. So Abhishek, what do hackers do after they pop your email from all the things that you've learned from building material security? Yeah. And even just asking that question was such a big reframe of the problem, if you think about it, because for so long, email security has been synonymous with just trying to block bad emails coming in or block bad emails going out, which is obviously necessary, but it's obsessed with the idea of like, how does someone get in? Oh, or you can mangle them too. Don't forget, you can put that big yellow thing on the top. It's, this is from an external sender. You can, <laughs> yeah. you can scramble all the links and break G Suite. There's so many <laughs> wonderful things that you can do to email to abuse it in motion. Exactly. So, And all of that is addressing one, one problem, which is, okay, people use email as a way to deliver bad things to you. And you, wouldn't it be nice if we could stop that at the perimeter? But even just asking the question that you asked me, which is, okay, fine, but if someone did get in, what would they actually do? That's a really interesting question because then it leads to a different way of thinking, which is, okay, let's forget about how all the different ways they could get in. Let's just focus on the fact that if they were in, what would they do? And then you start listing some of those things out. And this is where the John Podesta story comes into play. But you start listing some of those things out and they're not as long a list as all the different ways I could get in. So for example... If I get into an email account, I'm going to 
first of all, download the whole thing because it's probably got 10 years of email sitting in the archive full of juicy content. Or maybe I'm going to use it to reset a password to another service like a Twitter account. So if you just start thinking about what would an attacker actually want, they didn't do this just for fun. They, they think of it as the prize. Then you can start doing something about each of those situations. With Material, we're basically asking this question of why did they come here in the first place? What did they want out of this? And then can we figure out a way to stop those things? So it's reduced the sort of blast radius of a breach. Yeah, Mrs. Rogers, my high school AP English teacher, would she'd always just be like, so what? The Socratic method, uh, you know, <laughs> like, so Gatsby had the green light or whatever. So what? And so somebody <laughs> hacked your email. Like, why did they come here? What do they want to do? And there's, there are like formalizations in security. There's things on the CSSP about impact and consequences and all these things. And it makes a lot of sense. It's just like it, 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 empirically people take a meeting with us because we're like, yeah, I think I'm doing everything right with email, man. But it's, uh still the the main thing in my nightmares and we're like yeah that's because it's a big problem it's like pure gandalf like this foe is beyond any of you and yeah but then you're like you just you get the meeting because the problem's big and then you're like hey if there if you could use like machine learning to block bad emails better don't you think like google would be all over that they got 1.9 billion active users like they're pretty good at this machine learning thing and so you you just you you give people like a, a breath of fresh air and you say look like what are you really worried about and what can we do about that if I hack your laptop some other way, or you've got like a browser extension or something that, you know, can read the DOM that I paid 10 grand to some, you know, kid in, in Eastern Europe or something for so that I could read your DOM, I'm just going to go after your email and it has nothing to do with phishing. So it's just, just think a little bit more about like the implications of someone hacking you and less like all the different ways that they can do it. Like Abhishek has talked about like the, the number of doors and windows and air vents into my house versus the number of things that are worth stealing in my house. And in my house, there's not a lot worth stealing. I, I live pretty poorly. <laughs> What's so funny is we're a few minutes into the podcast, but I can already hear the the flow between you two. Ryan, I'd love to hear a little bit about how you guys complement each other, whether you're working or solving problems <laughs> together. Where does one come in and one step out? Like, how does that ebb and flow happen? Oh, God. Much practice and iteration. No. <laughs> yeah. And we have a third co-founder, too. He doesn't get enough credit because he's like, just he's the adult in the room frankly. Uh, and he doesn't need that credit. But his name is Chris Park, and he's a wonderful person. Uh, and I'm so thankful that I met him. Like He was my first employee at the last startup. And he's just, he's a machine. And he's a patient, happy warrior. And honestly, he's like the referee between me and Abhishek a lot of the time. Uh, so, like much, much hand-wringing you know, happens in, in startup land of how many co-founders is the right number of co-founders? The solo founder, visionary. Oh no, you got to have the business guy and you got to have the technical guy. <laughs> honestly, there's just there's no right answer. But for us, it was having just, you have to have a creative team that can get stuff done. And you have to have people that like the, even the, should you have a, a, a co-founder and, and maybe she's the perfect compliment to you. She's the salesperson and you're the engineer or incident response better than anybody, but they really know, you know, how to go and get that meeting with the CISO or something. And it's, you want to have some overlap, honestly, because like fundamentally the, startup can burn you out and like the ability to take a vacation is wonderful. So uh, I know that I can go to Hawaii for a week back in the before times when that was possible. And like Abhishek can handle it and Chris can handle it. So for us, like we, we just got into this rhythm. The analogy that I use is like, uh, like the Beatles started as like a skiffle band in Liverpool, but then they like went to Hamburg or whatever to play in CD German clubs for a long time together. And that's how they, they started banging on their guitars and they left singing in the three-part harmonies and stuff. So you just, you just 
spend a lot of time with somebody and just do a lot of practice and just get used to them. And Abhishek and I have the ability to just like just get each other psyched up about anything. And we can just start using twin speak or symbolic language or whatever. Uh, it just, you just have that. But it also means that you can talk past each other sometimes. You don't realize when, when you're saying the same thing, but you're both so goddamn excited about it that you don't realize yeah. you different words, <laughs> same concept. Uh, and that's why I'm, I'm just glad we have Chris. So for us, the magic answer was like having three people because the third person can just see the other two talking past each other. Or the third, if there's some decisions are honestly left or right, they're a fork in the road. And when you've got three people, like you have a natural, at least not like you're not putting these things to a vote. If you're voting on things, you're failing, but at least you have a natural lean. Uh, and that's also pretty handy. If you can, you know, handle the extra 50% more random appendicitis struck by lightning risk on your founding team. I highly recommend three if they're the right three people. And for me, these two are the right people. They're so cool. I'm so lucky. <laughs> I mean, you know I mean that. That's the funny part. Uh, yeah, I guess the only thing I would really add to that, because that was pretty comprehensive, is uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the way we compliment each other is Ryan speaks for 10 minutes and I summarize it in two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that actually, we, we, use, we use each other's skill sets strategically. So. <laughs> but in all seriousness, I think echoing some of what Ryan said, first of all, we worked pretty closely together at Dropbox. We were on the same team. We were counterparts. And that was very beneficial because it allowed us to figure out each other's working styles and stuff, all of which is very awesome if you've already figured out before you then start a company because trying to figure out a product and a go-to-market strategy and build a complete new thing from scratch while also still trying to figure out how to even work with the other person, that's very difficult. So I think, first of all, we had a lot of practice, but I think it's also as you go along, you discover each other's strengths and you figure out like which scenarios one person's going to be successful at, whereas the other scenario, like the other person's really better positioned for. And I think we like joke internally. Sometimes we call it like icy hot or something, but like you, you have like different modes and sometimes you need one versus the other and being able to fully internalize each other's strengths and weaknesses and have no ego about it, but just think about it as, Hey, yeah, this is what you're good at. I need you here. Or this is what I suck at. And if I also have you on this, like it's going to be way better. That's that level of trust and like low ego is what allows it to work. Yeah. I'm the bishop. I move diagonally. He's the knight. He moves like an L, but he can hop over people. And that's pretty cool. You know? And we're on the same team here. Okay. Yeah. And one thing I definitely want to reiterate that Ryan said is I think that too often people focus on completely complementary skill sets and forget about the value of overlap. If you're just coming from two entirely different worlds, then yes, early on, some things are going to be easier because you'll have your own swim lanes and you won't really be like, conflicting on day-to-day -day stuff. But I, I think that the downside of that is that you're also not pressure testing as much. Whereas if you both have some overlapping skills, like if I know about product, but so does Ryan, and if I know about engineering, but so does Ryan, then like we have the ability to pressure test each other and not just take each other for their word, which is really useful early on because everything is difficult and there's a lot of value in getting two or three brains to work on the same problem. And it also allows you to skip a lot of translation steps, right? You're not having to explain your world to the other person and vice versa. You're both living in both worlds. Yeah. And, and then a lot of the thoughtfulness that you have to bring into your founding team, you have to bring into your early hires as well. So just like self-awareness is pretty great in general when you can cultivate it. And we also lucked out having a fantastic early handful of hires that you were just frankly people that we'd work really closely with who were just at the right place in life at the right time. And yeah, it's, yeah, it's been hashtag blessed pretty hardcore. So. <laughs>
I always love hearing the synergy between founders. Like you can hear it with you, Abhishek, and you, Ryan. You guys are almost completing each other's sentences. And it's a beautiful thing to hear. And it's almost like, dang, only if I could find that when I'm building a startup. Luckily, I have Chris, you know. (laughs) On on an unrelated note, I'm looking for a new co-host over here. (laughs) You know, luckily, we have each other also. And I think a lot of people, our listeners can hear that. Chris picks up after me. I pick up after Chris. If there's an open question or something that just needs to get done with the podcast. I would also like to hear about some of the challenges that you all have being similar and different in ways and also working on a unique product. You guys are in a newer field, cybersecurity, and solving a lot of organizations' problems. What kind of challenges do you two face just by building this product and going through this founder's journey? If you've got three minutes, it should probably be Abhishek's question, frankly. (laughs) (laughs) I'll I'll answer the first part of what you asked, like challenges from being similar. Going back to kind of what I was just talking about, like when you come from similar backgrounds, like no one is the authority, right? Like ideas get pressure tested and really taken, they really get put through the grinder in terms of what's going to work about them and not. One time Ryan had this phrase that I loved, which is like, dude, like sometimes every day is like an intellectual MMA fight. And it's because it's, it is like, we're heavily debating a lot of things and whether it's like strategy or like engineering stuff. So I think one of the challenges is just using your overlap of skills for good and not letting it paralyze you. That's more specific to just us as a founding team. But I think you were also asking about the industry. For me personally, and I'm, I'm sure Ryan will have his take as well, but for me personally, I think there's the standard stuff of just like understanding the things that the industry is doing for very good reasons and not being like naive about just dismissing all of them, but then also balancing that with the healthy skepticism as a, as a kind of newcomer to the industry of, hey, why do you do this again? Like, why is it that things need to be this way? And if you think about it, that's a trade-off that's like actually very difficult to balance, to strike because you don't want to take everything at face value and never question anything because then you wouldn't be a founder. You wouldn't really be changing anything. But on the other hand, if you question everything that's done and you like reinvent the wheel on every topic, then you're one, you're slow. You're not capitalizing on lessons that have already been learned. But two, you might also just become paralyzed. You can't move forward, right? Because you're overthinking everything. So for me personally, one of the biggest challenges is just knowing and having intuition on where to question something, where to really press someone that has like a very well-defined belief and challenge them versus where to just be like, okay, yeah, this is the way things are done or this is the way that uh, th- this lesson has been a hard learned lesson and doesn't need to be re- relearned. I'd love to hear from both of you. What are What is a piece of sage advice that you'd have for the listeners out there that are thinking about doing a startup? thinking about pulling a team together, talking to VCs, they want to scale and do all these great things. What piece of advice would you have for them to begin that journey? We'll start with you, Ryan. Oh man, I probably spend a lot more time than I should like trying to help other founders who are like a couple, maybe one or two turns of the wheel behind us. But it's because frankly, so many people helped us and, and helped me in both my companies. So I, yeah, if, if you ever pull up my Google calendar and you're like, who the hell is that? that person? <laughs> Why is he helping them? Just assume it's my like Catholic guilt uh, coming through. <laughs> but it, it's actually awesome. And so I'd say that the things that I give people advice on all the time, and there's a lot that are obvious, turns out, stop trying to get into things. Like, and I mean that in the like, I got into college or I got into, I got accepted into the Google or whatever. Like the, there's a lot of people who just, they try to 
like, okay, what's the checklist for me accomplishing this thing? Like, where is the authority figure that I have to convince to give me the accolade or the degree or the job or the series A, frankly? And so they just, they're looking for love in all the wrong places. And so it has to be from you, honestly. Don't outsource like your purpose to some person who can hand you a milestone or whatever, because those are the wrong milestones and that will leave you flat. There's a lot more capital in the world right now than there is purpose. So I, I walk it back and I, I, God bless like YC for a lot of things, but like the, they've really done the, oh, I got to get into YC. Like it's like startup grad school. And it's just, okay, guys, chill out. <laughs> like you're going to be in this for eight years of your life, maybe more. I hope mm-hmm. you're doing it for the right reasons. And so, so that's about funding. I would say like focus, and this is just reiterating what we said before too, but the, the team as well, you, you, you can't, you're not going to get like in sync together. Like you got to be like, you got to know each other. Like you're not going to, don't be a, a manufactured team here. Like you're going to be stuck with each other. You're going to want to be stuck with each other. So I know you're 23 and, and super eager to be the next whatever, but maybe spend some time building out human capital, right? Figure out the people that you work well with and, and like know thyself before you get trapped. Otherwise, your first startup is going to be your starter startup. And, and you can do that. You can learn on the job. That's totally right. But there's a lot of collateral damage that comes from spending a couple of years of your life on something that doesn't work out. So you can get most of the way there, honestly, by just taking a lot of coffees with people who want to just unburden themselves and talk about their experiences. And you can get a lot of the way there by just meeting really good people and learning how to work with them. I would say take a breather. I, I, I don't know if I followed this advice. My first job coming out, I was working while in grad school as a first employee at a startup. But, and so I had a lot of just fits and starts and starting from scratch over and over again. But I'm, it's, the experience is actually cool. And really focus on the people you're starting your company with and make sure you're doing it for the right damn reasons. And if there's any awkward discussion that you're like, no, we don't need to talk about that. Oh, like that person doesn't seem to want to know how to quit their job because they're trying to have it both ways, but I'll totally do it. Like just find any dirty laundry, like figure out all the things that could go wrong uh, and all the things you're not saying to each other and say them to each other now, because <laughs> anything you let fester uh, will blow up in your face and take a lot of other people with it. Yeah. Kind of just, yeah. Start from a clean slate, strong fundamentals. There you go. What about you, Abhishek? Yeah, one of the very tactical pieces of advice I would give someone that's thinking about starting a company, often I run into a lot of people that are at a job right now and they're like looking for the stars to align so that they can leave. And I think one thing I've found is that can put a lot of pressure on starting a company because you're like expecting it to be perfect in every way. You've got the perfect co-founder, perfect idea. Of course, it's going to be like a billion dollar market. Like all these things need to line up before I can even take the first step. I think... There's absolutely certain things that you can and should figure out while still at your job about whether you should or want to start a company. But there's a bunch that you really need to get into it before you can explore them. And so divorcing the idea of leaving your current job from starting a company is really helpful. Like independently deciding, hey, am I done with my current stint, with my current tier of duty, wherever it is you're working? Just think about that independently. And if independently you've decided, yes, I'm done with this and I'm either going to change jobs or start a company, then it allows you to give yourself space to figure out whether starting a company is the next step. Whereas if you're really trying to hold one branch while still looking for another, it's, it makes that makes it that much harder to take the leap. So being able to separate those conversations in your mind, I think, is one piece of like very tactical advice that I would give to anyone considering taking the leap. of faith. Yeah. Consider having some courage. <laughs> it's okay. You can do it. You'll figure it out. You can be unemployed for a while. It's not the end of the world. 
quick masterclass for a founder and entrepreneur. Gentlemen, thank you so much for hopping on the mics with us. For the folks that want to stay up to date with you and everything that you're doing with material security, what are the best ways that people can do that? You can friend us on LinkedIn. You can go to material.security. We have a Twitter too, at materialsec. But yeah, no, we're not really great at social media. But yeah, reach out. We're happy to hang out and talk about stuff. (laughs) Well, you gave a great human sentiment at the last question. You guys are all about building those human relationships. So we would highly encourage any and everyone to reach out to both Ryan and Abishak. We actually met you through a mutual friend, Haroon. And we'll be sure to drop all of you all's resources into the show notes. It's been a pleasure and thank you all so much. We'll see everyone next time. Thank you you for having us. If you enjoy our content, it would mean so much to us if you shared this episode on social media told a friend, or wrote us a review on your favorite podcast streaming platform.